Hi, um, today's March 17th, St. Patrick's Day, and in honor, we have uh, Jay Cooey with us, um, PhD. Uh, he's going to explain a little bit of his own background, here, and we'll talk about why he's here. Jay. Hey, thanks a lot for having me. I was really enjoyed your appearance on um, Mark's show, and uh, I actually picked up your, your book because of Mark's show, so thanks a lot for having oh, me. I'm so, so honored. Thank you. Um, I'm a former academic neurobiologist. Uh, right before the pandemic, I found myself as a research assistant faculty member at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine. And now I live in Pittsburgh and I am a independent consulting biologist for um, Children's Health Defense. And uh, I also produce uh, a show on Twitch where I teach immunology and biology. Um, so I guess I'm just an independent biology teacher and a consultant. and and I'm happy to be here. Yeah, I mean, I, I also think you have a, a future as a voice actor. <laughs> I mean, you have a, an incredible voice. And I've watched your videos. You were, you were uh, on the bicycle, uh, which was a novel way of presenting. Um, and maybe you could tell us a little about literally and figuratively your journey. Yeah, sure. Um, so it's a, it's a convoluted one because I, I trapped myself very early as a child um, by saying to adults that I wanted to be a doctor. And um, I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but once you say that, there's no better answer anymore. You can't change your mind after that because the doctor's the best answer. I've been there. I, yeah. I, I, I'm going to break in just slightly. But, you know, when I was a kid, I wanted to be a fireman. I wanted to be an astronaut. I wanted to be this. That, that. And at one point, I um, I actually had, had one of my thumbs severed. And it's so awesome that you can't tell which. Um, it was a, I was four or five years old, and I want to get into it. But uh, I was fixed. And and at that point, I said, oh, I want to be a, a doctor. And my mom, whenever I went to astronaut or scientist, whatever, she's like, well, but you said doctor. <laughs> you know, I'm, so I apologize for that diversion. No, no, no problem. But then you understand perfectly how that happened. And so anyway, um, I got all the way through college, fired up about it. And uh, then I spent five years treading water trying to get in. And I was only on the waiting list. And um, this found me um, teaching high school and bartending. And I fell in love with teaching, um, but I made a lot more money bartending and I had a lot more fun actually. And so for a brief period of time, I wandered completely off the professional whatever path and uh, was a bartender for a couple of years. Um, I made a few wrong choices, which led me to losing my bartending position. So I had to look for a job in the classified ads. And I got lucky and found this research technician, technician job at the University of Chicago where somebody reignited the fire of the biologist inside of me. And uh, that led me to doing my PhD in the Netherlands, marrying my wife, uh, moving to Norway, and uh, as a neurobiologist working for um, a guy by the name of Meadow Witter um, at the Institute where Edward and Maybrit Moser would win the Nobel Prize four years later or five years later. Um, and so on the back of that, I tried to get tenure in the Netherlands, but I still hadn't figured out how to integrate with a faculty and how to work my way through a hierarchy like that. I had a big mouth and I had a big ego and I didn't get enough grant money to have the big mouth and ego that I had. Um, and so I found myself finding a job in Pittsburgh as a, a research assistant professor at this stage is kind of like a first mate. You basically are in charge of all the wet work in the laboratory and you make sure that everybody knows what they're doing while the boss sits in the lab writing or in the office writing grants. And that was working very well until the pandemic started. I had started um, 
using my bike ride as a journal club. So I had students and uh, those students had to read papers and I just felt it was an interesting way to give them an introduction to the paper by making a journal club of the paper so that we didn't have to talk about the basics of it already and we could get into the exciting part when we were in person. Um, and this was just something I really started to enjoy. I was always recording my bike ride um, for security purposes because I wanted to have an accident recorded if I had one. And at some moment it dawned on me that I could almost hear my swearing in the camera. And so what if I just started talking and then the wind was a problem. I got a microphone before you knew it, it was perfect. Um, and it seemed like it was a masterclass in time management because I could just come home, cut the video, put it online and I was done going to work in the the journal club at, at work was really nice then because the students were all fired up and they'd all watch the video. And so it was really neat. And then um, I did three bike rides where I did coronavirus reviews where I had read, I don't know, uh, quite a few papers and tried to understand the background of coronavirus manipulation and coronavirus molecular biology, what they'd done, what they hadn't done. And, and just tried to make the argument that it wouldn't be crazy for this to be a laboratory virus. And after the third review bike ride, um, I had gotten it down pretty good and I wasn't making mistakes. I had cleaned up some stuff. In the first video, I think I called flu also a coronavirus instead of just an RNA virus. And I made some other mistakes. And so by the third video, it was pretty right. And so then I started telling my faculty, fellow faculty at the University of Pittsburgh, I really would appreciate it if you check this bike ride out. I put a lot of work into it. And it'll answer a lot of questions that this New York Times is not going to answer for you. And uh, surprisingly, no one watched it. Um, we got into other arguments about transfection and stuff a few months later. And eventually I had yelled at too many people. And I had, I had, I guess I had insulted people, calling people idiots for reading the New York Times instead of watching my video and reading, reading the papers. But but, you know, we were I'm surrounded by people who went to Harvard and their tenure faculty at a medical school. And they just said that, you know, it's a novel new virus. What could you possibly know about it? You know, what could you. And it, it, it was just the abject sort of lack of curiosity, despite all of the hubbub happening around them, including a full on lockdown. Yeah, it really shocked me a lot. Um, and the more I learned the more saddened I was by the fact that at a medical school, people were afraid to learn immunology again. And oh, that yeah. that's where I really got into trouble. They asked me not to, not to come in anymore. And then I just kept working and luck, got lucky enough that somebody put me in front of uh, Bobby and Bobby is now helping me keep the boat afloat here. That's Bobby Kennedy Jr. Bobby Kennedy Jr. Yes. And that's the Children's Defense Fund, correct? Uh, not the found, not the fund. You got to be careful because that one is a that's a that's a that's a hoax or whatever. That's like a bad organization. It's Children's Health Defense. That's it. I'm so sorry. No, no, don't apologize. It happens a lot. Everybody hears that, but it's a it, they're, they're sketchy. Right. So let's they're, let's, they're let's not, say that they're not with Robert F. Kennedy. Let's so say it's it. Children's Health Defense. And yep. frankly, it's it's sad that children's health needs defending. I mean, yeah. it's, it's it's the most natural thing. Uh, I, I almost everybody I, I speak to at one point was a child, um, unless in fact they are actually children right now. You almost made me spit my tea out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's two categories of people: children and people who used to be children, and not to have sympathy for that 
through which passage we all um, become. That's uh, bad. So is really is is really the 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 sign of a uh, I hate to say this, but a decaying uh, civilization, a decaying ethos. And but to get to your earlier point, um, you know, I I heard uh, I listened to Andrew Clavin. He's kind of my spirit animal, and uh, he was saying that follow the science actually was follow the scientists. And and whenever he hears follow the science, it's really it, it's a group phenomenon. It's a grouping phenomenon. And I brought this point up uh, previously uh, about schooling. Uh, schooling actually has a dual meaning. Uh, one you know, very common one is what that which we've both been through to get our body of knowledge to a certain extent. But there's also the, the, the schooling in terms of fish, you know, fish school. And I don't know why they came up with that word for it, but it is an interesting phenomenon as a, as a metaphor for what actually happens with the science and the scientists. And, and, and that, that they wind up grouping and, and coagulating in a sense and following each other uh, for the purpose of this funding mechanism, it's kind of a, it's almost like the feeding thing that the fish do. It's their self-protect. I mean, let's, why do fish school? Well, because they got tiny little brains. They never even met their parents. They don't know how to be fish. And they see these other ones and they're all following around. It's, and I mean, it's, it's probably a reasonable thing. Cause like, I mean, if you are going to get eaten, it's going to be the one on the edge and whatnot. All right. So some protection and they're, they're doing what fish are. Maybe that's how they learn how to, how, maybe that is schooling for them. Um, but, but it's not, it's not directive. It's not, it's not imaginative. And it's not, in, in a sense, where where you go. Uh, I, I mean, you are an unusual guy. Uh, probably nobody else has to tell you this. Uh, you probably know it yourself. Um, it's sad, though, that the imagination imagination part of science seems to be taken out when that is generally the essence of it. No, I would. Uh, wow, that's a home run. I don't know really how to follow that, other than to say, you know, when you look back at the real giants of of scientific thinking, like Buckmeister Fuller or something like that, that's that's where he would start. Um, and his your your point about schooling is also something that I think Buckmeister Fuller would really like because he saw children as asking the right questions and adults trapped behind the wrong ones. And it is the the open mind of a child and the curiosity of a child that gets in a lot of ways burnt by overschooling or the wrong kind of schooling, let's say. I've said a lot on my stream lately that the problem that we have is that a lot of the biologists that are in the positions that they are right now, have not been free-thinking apprentices of their previous teachers, but they've been more or less disciples or cult followers. And so they haven't learned the ideas and evaluated them on their merit and then taken them forward with their own contributions. They've sort of absorbed the model of public health whole cloth and, and surrendered to it and are unwilling to alter it or change it or, or improve it in any way, but instead are I have a vested interest in preserving whatever it was that was given to them. And um, it's a safe feeling to have as well, because of course, if you stick stick your head up about a silly idea and everybody else in the room says it's silly, um, that's not a very fun place to be. But um, I think that's, that's what I saw um, at the University of Pittsburgh because, and that particular little bubble that I was in we were almost exclusively people studying the brain using the mouse as a model because the mouse is so easy to genetically manipulate both mm -hmm. both acutely and permanently you know transgenic animals exist but we also have a whole bunch of tools to change molecules locally proteins locally or or even temporarily or even with a switch that's like light or something else and so all of these hugely valuable tools 
are mainly applicable to mice. And, and most of these tools require some form of transfection because to get the tool where you want it to be, you have to express that tool, the protein, in the right place, in the right combination, in the right cell type. And so that is a very well-studied art of directing plasmids to the right cells with the right complementary genes so that only those cells can express what you want them to express and their neighbors don't. And so we can hit particular excitatory cells with an optogenetic protein and not the inhibitory cells right next to them just based on the promoter we choose. But each of these things is transfection. It is using electricity, lipid nanoparticles, gold particles, um, adenovirus to insert these genes and cause the, the expression of the proteins that we are going to use as tools to probe brain function. And so these are all people who over the course of their career have done nothing but transfect mice, see the effect, sacrifice the animal, do histology. Now, the shocking thing is, is that these people don't seem to realize that if they were to transfect their animals in the brain and then let them live for three years, as opposed to do the recording, do the behavior, sacrifice the animal and do the histology to show that you hit the cells you were supposed to hit, what happens is that entire area of the brain gets destroyed by the immune system. And this aspect of transfection in mice is not explored because all of these mice are sacrificed at the end of the experiment to do the anatomical portion to show you where they put it was correct. So, so I'm going to interrupt for a second just for our, our folks at home, and I'm going to see if I can just uh, um, kind of like uh, down express uh, some of what you've said. Uh, to see if I followed along accurately. Um, when you say transfect, obviously that is to put some different um, uh, genetic material in a cell um, that is not natural to that cell or that organism or that animal. And that's going to be changing the way that cell expresses itself. So that's like, the, I think the basic concept of transfection it doesn't change the genome of the animal or the genetic offspring per se, but, but for that particular animal it does. And what you're saying further is that a transfected cell is potentially perceived as other, as foreign, and so forth, and might you know re require and and conjure up um, <clears throat> a, a battle from the cell's own native immune system, which only likes us. It likes our cells, and so forth. And when it sees something foreign, whatnot, it will go after it. And so I think to, to make the next jump would be the implication is that if you're doing this on a regular basis, if you're uh, inserting genetic material into our own you might very well have longer term uh, effects from our own immune system battling our own cells uh, along the lines of say, what actually is a set of disease, rheumatic illnesses and so forth. Uh, just for our listeners, you know, strep throat is not a problem per se. Uh, we treat strep throat because it brings on rheumatic fever and potentially other set of abnormalities, rheumatic uh, joint disease, rheumatic heart disease and so forth, because uh, there's something in the strep that gets expressed that our immune system finds in ourselves. So it's a little bit different, um, but this, this kind of battling yourself is the whole nature of lupus um, and a whole bunch of immunologic disorders, which are not necessarily after the vaccine or the virus per se, but I think those are kind of along the lines of what you're saying. Am I on, am I on the right path at all? 
Absolutely, you are. And and the the interesting thing about transfection in a laboratory model, and I should clarify that too, because if we're going to be precise, we might as well be very precise. So when you use mRNA to express a protein, that's called transfection. But if you use DNA, like you use with an adenovirus, like the J&J shot, then technically that should be called transformation. So, and these are two broad terms, just like urinating. If I say I'm urinating, it doesn't matter whether I'm in a parking lot or in my bathroom, it's the same action. And if you use an adenovirus or electricity to put DNA in a cell and make it express a protein, that's transformation. And if you use electricity or a lipid nanoparticle to bring mRNA, then that's uh, transfection. And they should have been very precise about it from the very beginning. These are transfection and transformation products. That's what they are. Mm -hmm. um, so... The, there's two things that I wanted to add to that too. Um, the first one is, is that a lot of the transfection that is done on the academic biology bench is not transfection that's using mRNA enhanced like this one is. So the immune response in a mouse um, in a, on a bench scenario might actually be faster um, than the, the response um, to so not faster, but more contained, sorry, because the transfection in the mouse is stopped by the natural mechanisms of degradation of the RNA. Whereas when we are using the transfections of Moderna and Pfizer, these have been chemically altered in a way that, that prevents them from or limits the amount of degradation that occurs and greatly extends their lifespan even on the inside of the cell after repeated translation. And so that difference hasn't been adequately, adequately quantified at all, but it will contribute to a longer signal. And so in any event, it's, it's hard for me to imagine a scenario where that's better for the, for the person that's transfected. It just gives the immune system a longer time to make a mistake. So I, 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 don't, I don't want to hijack this conversation, but I, I remember uh, when Paul Offit, O-F-F-I-T, uh, he's kind of the Dean of Virology. Oh. Um, he was asked when the, um, Vaccines were in prep, I believe, or actually maybe, you know, late 2020 when they were coming out, um, whether he's taking them, I think he said yes. Um, but he, he was asked, how long will they be active, the mRNA versions? Um, how long will they be active in the system? And he said, I don't know. <laughs> and he said it could be days, weeks or months. He didn't add or years or whatever. But um, in, in, the, in the frame of not knowing, uh, that would seem to be a reasonable um, posit. So I actually kind of, I'm not sure you can answer this question because I'm not sure it's answerable per se, but um, had, had there ever been an mRNA uh, vaccine in, in broad use, um, such as we decided to experiment with, you know, a couple billion people on earth uh, in this uh, eventuality, as opposed to what I say, kind of the classic influenza shot using adenovirus and so forth, um, we'll call them the transform, transformation types, as opposed to the transfection uh, type. Um, had there ever been any broad use of mRNA vaccine at all? And no, in fact, in fact, the use of, of any of these transformation or transfection methodologies has only been applied to people that are planning on dying anyway. So very severe. Um, well, I'm just for the record, I'm planning on dying. Yes, but relatively soon um, <laughs> and, and can't avoid it because your cancer is crashing. Um, because you have an untreatable cancer, because you haven't responded to the chemotherapy. Um, and then they've also tried it, incidentally, with 
and I'm not going to be able to pull up the guy's name right now because I wasn't ready. That that's I unfortunate, but there was the original patient that was treated in this way to attempt to cure a genetic disease, I believe is a person that had, you might be familiar with it if I explain it, that they're missing a certain starch mm-hmm. digesting enzyme. And so they need to be given starch like every seven hours since wow. they're kids. And they they tried to reinstall this gene in the pancreas, I believe is where it is, but I could be getting this wrong. Um, and they used transfection. And for the, the first transfection worked great. The mm-hmm. second transfection provoked an autoimmune response that destroyed his pancreas and killed him. Mm-hmm. So that was the only human trial that, or that was the first human trial. So that's, that's, that's along the lines. There was a Trump era bill called the right to try, uh, which was specifically for cancer drugs that were, you know, not fully proven. And it was a rush. So that's kind of an e, like a personal EUA emergency right. use, use authorization. And that was, I believe, a 2018 bill. And, and Mr. Trump said, you know, we have these medications. We may not know if they're great or not, but you only have a few months to live. Why not try them if you want to? You don't have to, but but if you want to be part, kind of an accelerated experimental aspect, go for it. And so that that was a, a big boon, I believe. Uh, I, I'm old enough to have been through kind of the latril uh, era, um, where people oh, yeah. were running off to Mexico to get latril, which I guess is from apricot pits and whatnot. And it's a poison of sorts, which, mind you, are uh, is identical to all chemotherapy, which are all essentially poisons. Um, it's a matter of poisoning the part of you that, you know, you, that is fast replicating. So it's a, it's a particular kind of point, poison that goes after cell replication. Um, and, and in fact, you know, antibiotics, uh, the, the name in, inherently means anti-life, anti-bio. Um, so it, it's always a matter of, of shooting at something, but um, it's a little bit like a hostage situation. You know, only experts can kind of get the um, kidnapper uh, without killing the, the innocent. And so, you know, when things are, are yourself, when cancer itself, it's very difficult to shoot, you know, your own cell, which happens to be cancer cell versus your own cell, which happens to be not a cancer cell. Anyway, so a lot of the differentiation here, um, you know, is, is a matter of degree. So, you know, it's easier to kind of kill, say, uh, a fungus uh, than it is to, to kill you know, one of your cancer cells, because that, that is more different, if that's a word, uh, more nearly different from your own. Anyway, so sorry for the diversion. So, I'm just going to kind of see if we can segue a little bit into what is um, the, um, we use the term, Dr. Cooey, um, um, what, what's your basic hypothesis? What's your view? Um, uh, and if you uh, say, could, you know, have a, a op-ed in the New York Times, so forth, what, what would it state today? Um, it would state that, uh, that's a tough one. Well, we have been told, we were told, three years ago that there emerged a novel form of death and that the novel form of death was detectable by a diagnostic or a set of diagnostics. A novel form of what? Death. D-E-A-T-H, death. Yeah, dying. Yes, a novel form of dying. Um, And the novel form of dying could could be transmitted asymptomatically, um, but those asymptomatic cases could be identified by this new diagnostic. it is not clear to me that there is any evidence in the literature before the pandemic to indicate that an RNA virus is capable of infecting millions and maintaining fidelity of its genetic, the, the, of the genome. 
-hmm. It's not clear to me that there's any evidence from the post-pandemic literature that a virus is circulating and started in 2020. And the reason why I say that is because there's absolutely zero evidence from from humans as to how many SARS-like coronaviruses could have been tested with these products before 2020, because nothing was tested before 2020. It would be very similar to me saying that there is a pandemic of automobiles, but nobody has automobiles before 2020. And you're just going to have to believe me because we have no pictures from before 2020 and your experience doesn't count. The new respiratory disease is spreading and we can track it with our product. And that the product, the product being the PCR product being yeah, the, the product being the PCR. I mean, that's what most people so, use. So let's, let's parse this. Um, you know, so I, I wrote an article that's in the daily skeptic on October, 2022, um, basically about Omicron not being a, a lineal descendant of SARS-CoV-2. Um, the alpha, the beta, gamma, delta, et cetera, up to kappa, whatever, the lambda were uh, kind of the nieces, nephews, uh, grandkids, sons and daughters of SARS-CoV-2, which itself is seemingly either a clone or a, a knockoff um, or, a, you know, a kind of a transfected, <laughs> I misuse the word, version of SARS-1. Um, but Omicron uh, is spontaneous. It showed up in you know Southern Africa at some point. And coronaviruses, which people I think don't necessarily know, coronaviruses, you know, have been around as long as probably longer than humans. And, you know, one, I think the second leading cause by name of the common cold, historically, if you look at a textbook from 1998, uh, you'll find that is coronavirus. I think the first one is adenovirus, um, then coronavirus. And th there's a large group that's unknown, like 30, 40 percent of them, we don't bother testing whatever they can't figure it out or it's multiple or whatever. And um, then there's rhinovirus and RSV and all these other things. Um, but coronavirus has always been around as a common cold. And and so, you know, the fact that that Omicron shows positive uh, on the PCR testing and other tests as coronavirus. Well, that's fine. It's a coronavirus. It looks like all these other coronaviruses. So it just doesn't happen to have uh, the, the kick that, say, a SARS-CoV-2 SARS-CoV-2 did uh, in the initial phase. Um, are you are you just to kind of backtrack? Do you, are you saying there was no uh, illness from SARS-CoV-2, or that's not a thing, or it's it's kind of a um, you know kind of a no? Actually, the the thing that I'm trying to do is puzzle together how it is that simultaneously people who say there's no virus could have legitimate arguments about the way that the virus was was isolated in the beginning of the pandemic that people who say there's no virus can have legitimate gripes about old viral papers because they're weak from the 40s, who cares? But the molecular biologists can all be right that these PCR tests can't all be wrong. And the molecular biologists can be right that these sequences aren't fake. Now, how can we have it so that there was a severe disease very early, very locally isolated in a lot of places around the world where independent molecular biologists agree that correlating with those symptomologies was this molecular signature SARS-CoV-2. Because those are the two pieces of evidence that upon which everything, all the other assumptions are based. The Italian doctors 
Spanish doctors, Washington State, New York, Wuhan, Iran. There's some agreement that there was ARDS. There was something like an altitude sickness. These people didn't really benefit from ventilators. We should have done other things. Whatever that answer is, the symptomology and the high molecular signature was present in Washington, Wuhan, Iran, Italy, and Spain. And everybody agrees. But everybody also agrees with what you just said, which it pretty quickly, the severe disease, for the most part, disappeared. The core, the, the idea that we have 12 in the ICU now and three weeks from now we're going to have 1,200 never happened. Right, right. And so well, I, I think, yeah, but I, I think this is, I'm right. going to interrupt again. Yeah, sure. I apologize, but, but I think this is kind of a, so I have in that article, I have an analogy and I, I do analogies and I apologize, but my, my analogy is that, that I actually, I'm accompanied by my, my dog because my house is being worked on right now. That's why I'm in a different uh, venue. Right. Uh, I brought the dog with me and he's a, he's a wonderful chap, uh, his descendants. And so if, if we're, we're near some woods and there are actually wolves and coyotes and foxes, and I see them from time to time. Um, so this guy um, is, is, and, and the foxes, they have a common this, uh, uh, progenitor. They have a common antecedent. So wolves today came from wolves and dogs came from wolves and foxes and so forth. They all came from some proto uh, previous wolf, coyote, fox, dog, whatever. Um, uh, it's, it's when people talk about, you know, we didn't come from monkeys, but monkeys and we came from some previous monkeyish kind of guy, whatever. Um, anyway, so the, the wolves, they, they don't care. They can prey on us. They can take a, I don't know, whatever. Uh, a child or whatever, and they run off to the woods like the dingo ate my baby kind of thing. And they don't suffer any consequences because they don't need us. They don't live with us and they're not dependent on us. My dog, uh, he doesn't do that stuff. We've trained him and all that kind of stuff, but he understands that, you know, we are his lifeline. So hey, my, my point for analogy is that when something comes zoonotically, when something comes from the wild, like the first generation SARS in 2003 or whatever, it can come with a real pack you know, pack a punch. And so too can influenza every year because they have a, a zoonotic host. They're in pigs uh, domestically in China or what are other animals. So if something has an animal host, it can come in and, and, and maraud, pillage uh, and, and take over temporarily. But if it wants to stay in the village like and, and, and live with you essentially long-term, which is a common cold virus, it can't kill you. So what happens is automatically you get uh, um, a, a, a step down of the, of the 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 power, the punch, the dangerousness, the virulence, whatever you want to call it, um, if if it's going to be cohabiting with us. Ebola, you know, can have a punch every single time, but it doesn't stay with us, and we tend to deal with it and tends to be isolated in, incidents. So that's like a wolf marauding a village. But then you protect yourself, you move away, or you burn down that the, the woods wherever the, the the wolf is, and so forth. You change your your habitat, so the Ebola, the wolf doesn't come back. You put fences up. Your dogs, you don't have to do that. You don't have to put fences up for every single dog because they're not out to get you. They cohabit with you. And that's the common cold, coronavirus, so forth. So Omicron seems to be on that par with the common cold coronavirus, which is kind of hang out with us. And they don't want to kill us because they need to feed on us and be able to pass from person to person. And so there's kind of a, a, a two, two, you know, two separate, everything can fall into two categories. But the two categories, the ones that, that the viruses that don't care whether we live or die, and if they want to hang out with us, they start to have to care because they're not going to be transmitted from person to person uh, if if they kill off the host too quickly. And so this is going to have a natural tailing effect. And and so 
you know, as you go through the early Greek letters, you know, you go from SARS-CoV-2, ancestral, they call it, to alpha, da, da, da. each one is more mild than the next. And to, have, to continue to have, you know, some of the, the arrangements people have right now, I think Joel Smalley has a great article out today uh, called, you know, Japan is dumb, which is, too, you know, a little bit blunt. But basically, they're doing things in 2023 uh, that, that never should have been done and, and certainly shouldn't be done now. Anyway, I apologize for that. Uh, uh, no, 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 not at all. Um, I think the the point to be made with regard to the first um, SARS pandemic or epidemic, if you call it that, is to say that it, that as far as we're told, it infected approximately 8,000 people and killed just under 800. And in that time period, we developed a PCR test for it and then never rolled it out again. So... We don't know if that virus and its relatives are in the background because we've never tested for them. We test for other human coronaviruses and whenever we test for them, we find them all the time. There are papers that get done here and there where they show local outbreaks of OC43 and compare it to the prevalence of 229E and show that OC43 hits older people worse, but then those papers disappear and nobody's testing for them regularly. And it's only when driven by a grant coming from academic biology into the hospital that for a brief period of time, they test all respiratory cases for coronaviruses and find them. And so the concept here for me from a biological perspective is that virology has hoodwinked us on a lot of the fidelity that they're claiming. And I think the best example of this is the idea that we are testing for three amplicons out of a genome that's 3,000 bases, 30,000 bases long, we are testing for very tiny portions of it. And from the beginning, we were testing for three portions, the spike, an N-amplicon, and an RNA-dependent RNA polymerase. The problem with this strategy that they are not telling us and haven't told us from the beginning is that the RNA-dependent RNA polymerase is extremely conserved across all alpha and beta coronaviruses. The difference between alpha and beta coronaviruses isn't found in their replication transcription complex because that protein set is too important to be altered. And if you alter it by random mutation, you inevitably create a virus that doesn't work as well as the original. So the problem here is twofold. First one is, is that they've claimed that their fidelity has been the same throughout the pandemic, when in reality, it's probably only been very high in the beginning and then fell off as the original, whatever it was, disappeared. Because you, as you said, it could never have sustained itself until 2023. When did it disappear? Did it disappear by the summer? Did it, did it have another bump in the winter of 2020? Maybe. But at that point, it was gone. Mm -hmm. And on that background of 200 plus coronaviruses that, as you said, and I've got those books too, before 2020, there's just a paragraph that says coronaviruses of over 200 different varieties cause between 25 and 35% of all respiratory disease every year. And that's just the introduction to coronaviruses until this year. And now this year, they're almost unknown and unmentioned. And then there's a new one. And this... This is just a this is just a shell game because they are claiming the numbers are accurate. They're claiming their models are accurate. They're claiming their predictions were accurate, and all of these things are false. They're claiming that we don't need to talk about all cause mortality, and that's obviously false. 
And now we're running news programs about how about how infant mortality is up and about how respiratory disease and up and up. But we have no, we're not going to talk about the 13 billion doses of transfection that have been given out. Those don't matter at all. And so it's a really extraordinary situation we're in because even though the censorship has let up, the lack of informed consent is still exactly where it was. They're not putting any more truth on television. And in fact, the drama's only ramped up. Now it's a debate about who was lying about this big pandemic virus rather than who was lying about the pandemic. And I think this, this is a dangerous place that we're in right now because the, the prevailing narrative is that it happened, they could have made it, and it will happen again. And we're telling that to our kids. So they're going to grow up with this trap in their brain forever, when in reality, it's much more likely that coronaviruses is coronaviruses have always been relatively harmless except for the very old and frail mm -hmm. and that that coronavirus as such has been manipulated through a elaborate campaign of of bad science over the last 20 years to be to be given this narrative of pandemic potential that only really started after the SARS outbreak in 2002 we only found the first human coronavirus because we started looking after 2002. And that's the sad part of all of this. Now we claim that these other coronaviruses are, are not as deadly because they're older, but we have no evidence for that at all. Right. And so I, I, there's a lot of extraordinary hand-waving that goes on to try and make us think that this is a prescient, novel pathogen and these things are old and we don't have to worry about them and they never did anything to begin with. And I, I, I agree. I think there's a category mistake going on because uh, coronavirus has just never stopped existing and they exist, you know, as common colds. Uh, and so just because there are wolves does not mean there are not dogs. Um, and, and so, you know, we, we've have a, a test, a canine test, basically, uh, for which wolves are positive. There you go. There you and, go. And, and, and schnauzers are positive and poodles and, and, and cockapoos or whatever. They're all positive for this test. And then we act as if it's a wolf every time we, we test and, it, you know, it's a poodle. That's a very excellent analogy. That's very well done. Thank you. But it's, you know, it's an absurdity. You know, the, the 2003 SARS outbreak, it was probably bigger than what you uh, attest um, because China, you know, CCP, China, um, you know, um, I, if we renamed CCP, it would be closed, uh, concealed and protected. Um, but, you know, so, so to take their, their view on it, clear, clearly it was a bigger deal than that. Now, there's not that much discussion of it, but at the time there were literally riots. Um, I, I think forget which city it might have been Tianjin, but I'm probably getting it wrong um, because uh, China was forcing uh, people. Um, uh, I guess they were they were. You know, th this may sound unbelievable that that China would be heavy-handed with its own people and and lock them up and force them places under um, under. Uh, under duress and, and prison and prison. Anyway, they, they were taking people from part A to part B. You know, if they were where people where there was a pandemic or epidemic, they were, you know, ripping them out from the city and throwing them somewhere else, kind of like, you know, reminiscent of Khmer Rouge, but without killing them per se. And uh, this, so they were basically transfecting uh, their own populace from place to place or transmuting or transforming. Uh, anyway, they they were doing this and people were unhappy. So there were riots and so where they, they, um, 
brought out police and whatnot. They didn't, they're, they're afraid of Tiananmen Square again, uh, which I think was 1989 or 90. And, um, and so, what, you know, so they act that way. They they have their own almost viral uh, antibody going on in in in, in the, the the upper echelon of the party, and and what their you know their virus, the one they fear is 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 you know populism and solidarity amongst the people uh, to to you know overturn this kind of uh, you know we'll say mutated government, whatever. So so they they have their own antibody response, and they just boom, they get rid of people. Um, when they want to. And, that, and that's what they're doing now. They're trying to isolate and macrophage uh, their own populace and put them isolated. Anyway, so I, I'm going to maybe I just came up with this analogy, but, you know, these prison camps are like lymph nodes and whatnot. So they, they have their own form of, of dealing with this stuff, which we duplicated. Uh, you know, they, they went did lockdown and, and all of a sudden we did it. We, and maybe you can I don't know if you're a public health historian, but are you familiar with any lockdowns for public health emergencies prior? No, I mean, I think you're well aware that that lockdowns were considered something that actually didn't work um, before the pandemic and were part of the the who's own documentation saying that lockdowns were never appropriate for an epidemic. So it's unclear to me how this was all just inverted in a matter of weeks, but it certainly was just inverted. And even worse, there was no hesitation. The all of the the major leaders in the West um took the same stance uh, without really, you know, well, I know that this is unprecedented or it's kind of against our morals, but you know, we got to do it. Um, it was extraordinary to me. Yep. Yeah. So I, I'm going to, um, I have, uh, do you mind if I put up the slide we, we mentioned? Not at all. All right. So um, I apologize to our audience at home. It's, it's a little bit blurry um, and, uh, but I think it's still readable. Um, maybe you can, so the, the, the question is here, um, a scenario for previously endemic background. Maybe you can tell us what that means, and I'll try to make this big enough that people can read. Perhaps. Sure. Um, so would you like what, to go over this uh, with maybe in the you know, period of maybe four or five minutes? Sure. Okay. I'll try to be really quick. So the idea for me is to try and figure out if there is a plausible biological explanation which makes the molecular biology correct, makes the false positives relevant, and also um, makes the actual pandemic still false because I do, from 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 all of my reading and understanding, I don't think that an RNA virus released from a single point can pandemic, if I can use that as a verb. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, and so I don't think that that's possible. And I also firmly believe that the molecular signatures that we saw in Italy, Spain, Iran, Wuhan, Seattle, and in New York are real. And so the question is what really happened? And I think the only plausible explanation is hidden in the heart of the methodology of all RNA virology, which is using cDNA to create lots of cloned quantities of a single RNA viral sequence. That's how they study viruses in the lab. And this is the only way that a viral sequence could be so high fidelity in so many disparate geographic locations at once. And that's what this scenario is here, is it's trying to sort out a way so that almost everyone is right, but they're confused, rather than some people being completely right and some people being completely wrong, or these people being conspiracy theorists and these doctors being crazy. How about everybody 
really did see the incongruency and interpreted it in different ways. And if you do it this way, then the two things that are really at play here are the uniformity of the molecular signal and whether that could occur naturally. And I would argue that it can't. And so then how could it occur is, is encoded in every single RNA virology paper out there. You make an infectious clone of the sequence you want to scare people with, and then you release it in a few places in high quantity. Those will produce high viral load, a reliable symptomology, a severe respiratory disease that will correlate with a very high, easy to detect, easy to culture viral signature that in a matter of weeks, if not days, will decay into a lower viral load, lower viral signature and almost unculturable viral load that will then spread on a background that your test isn't specific for. That's the reason why you could open up a drive-through in Oklahoma and find people that were positive. It's not because the virus was magic. It's because, and exceeded all previous biological limitations of RNA, it's because the background wasn't clean and the test isn't specific. Right. And so then now you can see how with a simple sleight of hand and a few, few select, let's say, media stunts like New York City probably was, um, not saying that those people didn't get sick. I'm just saying that they amplified that as the start of something that never really kept right. going. And so that's what this is. This is the idea that, that how could the molecular biology be right? How could the doctors have been fooled in the beginning? And how could the tests still be coming out positive? How can we still be finding sequences? One of the things to remember, um, Randall, I wonder if you are aware of this. The initial announcement of Omicron occurred because five people who came back from Botswana to Belgium, I believe, tested positive. And when they sequenced them, they found Omicron, but they, they sorry, they were symptomatic, but they tested negative because they tested positive for the RNA-dependent polymerase, positive for the N, and negative for the S. And so the report was that these five cases of Omicron were the first documented spike gene target failure in the WHO PCR test. And so then they reverted to saying, you don't have to change the test, but if you get those two, the N and the RNA-dependent polymerase, and you don't get the spike for the first two years, that was a negative. But after Omicron was discovered, that became a positive. Right. Omicron. So they're, they're a little bit, they're, they're changing the field. Yes. You know, if you're sitting there watching a football game, and then at halftime, uh, they come out with balloons and cheerleaders, and you, you still want to call that football, you have to change your definition of football. Yeah, definitely. And, that so, was, and I, I think I think what you're talking about is interesting because I mean it, there's the background. Um, you know, if there's some zombie apocalypse, I think it's going to be fairly easy to tell because we don't have a background of zombies aside from the movies and whatnot. Perfect! Uh, but, oh my gosh, that's perfect, Randall. It's perfect. It's how I roll. Um, and so, so, but, but, but with coronavirus, like I said, with the, you know, we're doing a canine test. There's a background of canines and their background of wolves and so forth. There's some, you know, particularly rabid wolf that comes around uh, temporarily. Um, it's still a wolf and so forth. And so we're, we're getting, um, you know, this Oklahoma bit, we're getting, you know, first of all, they, they cycle the PCR so high that they're, they're finding vanishing, vanishingly small amounts. A, B, they mislabeled and mis 
characterize what is a, a case of something. You know, a case of cancer is when you have cancer. A case of tuberculosis is when you're uh, actively TB. So you don't necessarily cause a, call a positive tuberculin test a, a case of tuberculosis. And so forth. So they, they, they mistook latent for manifest. Uh, they have a, probably a lot of circulating coronavirus, which are falsely positive or, or smushing over, which is not a technical term, with, you know, the one they were looking for, SARS. And so, you know, it's confusion mixed up with uh, miasma of uh, mistakes, uh, under panic, uh, you know, cascading into uh, whatever, pandemia and so forth. Um, anyway, so uh, do you have more to add on this slide? Yeah, I think that's it, though, right? This is why the clone idea, that's why I sent that paper to you, because in order for them to study Zika, they had to construct a five-piece cDNA clone of it to generate enough RNA to do their experiment. They couldn't go into the wild, get some Zika culture enough, and then do an experiment. They don't do that with coronavirus either. And in fact, all of the times that this has been done has been based on either a the case in Wuhan that was published in Nature or the case in Washington, which was published by the CDC. Those are the only two cases from which SARS-CoV-2 is purported to have ever been passaged and then sequenced. And ever after that, people have been using a infectious clone of that sequence created from a cDNA clone. Hmm. So they, they can't just, you know, it's not like they can, um, if you wanted to have my mouse, I would just breed more mice and then send you some mice or give you a breeding pair and then you could breed your own mice. Viruses don't work like that. If you passage them more than five times, they're gone. If you take them out of the wild, you can passage them for a little while, you can sequence them, then they're gone. And so the only way that they can re re reproducibly investigate coronaviruses is to revert back to a cDNA copy so that they have a, a common place to start between one lab and another lab. Mm -hmm. And this is done ubiquitously for like 20 years now. It started with Vincent Ranson Yellow and and David Baltimore creating a clone of 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 the polio virus in the late 80s and uh it's it's gone ubiquitous throughout virology since and it's actually quite shocking that the people that invented cDNA cloning of viruses haven't been given a Nobel prize because it's basically changed the 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 field from something that was basically filtering and 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 hand waving to a whole a whole molecular toolkit and and reproducible experiments in a laboratory on a bench starting with cDNA. It's impressive because we wouldn't know anything about RNA viruses, anything good or bad, had they not been able to create clones of them. Otherwise, we'd still just be talking about a shadow that we see sometimes. Mm -hmm. And it's extraordinary because I think Zika is another one of those viruses that could only be detected as a shadow and could never be really manipulated or worked on for a, a, a reasonable period of time in the laboratory unless you revert to a cDNA copy of it. I can't find a single paper. Well, that's interesting. Uh, that's going to be its own topic, I think. Um, probably have to have you come back on and discuss it. Here's the article you're mentioning. Yeah. And I'm, obviously, I'd like to talk about Zika. And here's my uh, shameless self-promotion. Yeah, please do. Um, I'm the author of, uh, of this book. And I... Um, it's called Overturning Zika, the Pandemic That Never Was. Um, there's my self-portrait um, and my name. I, I recommend uh, people buy it because that will give me money. <laughs> and because they will edify themselves, they'll learn a little bit about uh, what happened with the last 
pandemic. Frankly, in this case, the I'm going to make it larger here, the pandemic that never was. I don't know if you know this or not, but the actually the first viral vaccine that was prepared under the mRNA platform was for Zika. They just never actually got it out. Well, that's an interesting point. So I'm going to segue to that. Um, this is my greater fear, and I actually would love if you um, could mention this to um, a man whom I admire, uh, RFK Jr., uh, Bobby. Um, and uh, so this is my... I, again, I don't. I don't think I'm a conspiracy guy, um, but I do think that Zika was announced. You know, pandemic, pandemic, and the, the world changed not as much as we've seen with COVID. But there were travel advisories. There were all kinds of upheaval. Uh, women still live under the presumption throughout the tropics. You know, a billion young families live under the presumption that a single mosquito bite can unalterably damage a cherished life within the first trimester and, and make your baby basically alive, but not say functionally adult through the course of his lifetime, microcephaly, cognitive um, uh, impairment, so forth. So this is a huge problem if it existed as a correlation. Microcephaly is a real thing. I think Zika is a real virus, um, but I don't think one causes the other. Zika, uh, you know, there, there are four dengue. So I have my little prop here. Mm -hmm. uh, people at home, there are four dengue named one, two, three, four. And, and there's, there's little tiny Zika, which had never caused a single case of human illness prior um, to its observation. In, in the 21st century and had been found in the Zika forest in 1947. So that's a good length of time, 60 years before anybody ever thought any it did anything to humans. And all of a sudden it's causing a problem that millions of cases of dengue recorded over decades never did. So if dengue, they, they pretty, pretty much share a good fraction of their genome, their appearance and all that kind of stuff. And Zika, if it does cause any human illness is a mild case of, of dengue, which is bone break fever, but it's not really noticeable, never symptomatic. So either it was there all the time, never, nobody ever distinguished it you know, there's four dengues. Who needed this little fifth one to be there or not? doesn't really matter. Either it's there or not there. I, I'm not going to comment on that per se. Um, I don't have the testing modality. But in Brazil at the time, in 2015, there were zero, literally, there's another prop, uh, zero tests of, of Zika available because Zika never caused human illness. And so they didn't test any Zika. Uh, they saw a little bit, uh, maybe a little blip of microcephaly happening. And, and they sort of thought they had found Zika in Brazil, you know, a few months before. So they said, oh, that's new. This is new. One caused the other, which I think is really juvenile, faulty logic, uh, fanciful, magical. And if it actually existed, would be a one in you know million chance of, of happening that way. Anyway, they were off to the race with that. And I, you know, the book is crucial for that. So here's my point. Here's the conspiracy part, which I think uh, the Children's Health Defense uh, would like to know about, which is in short order. Right now, they're testing, uh, they're injecting and infecting women in, in Baltimore at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, Dr. Anna Durbin is injecting and infecting people with Zika women um, to, to test, you know, the final stages of a, a Zika vaccine. Okay, all well and good. So what's going to happen as soon as there is a Zika vaccine? Well, Zika will be get to be monetized. Um, and we've already seen the power and force of the, the conjoint, the, say the regular agency capture, as, as Mr. Kennedy says, uh, between big pharma and big public health. And one tends to fund the other, you know, on one hand, patting the other and so forth. And, and so as soon as there's Zika vaccine, let's guess what's going to happen next. Well, Takeda, uh, Moderna, um, maybe Sanofi and so forth, they're going to have this out and they're going to have contracts, you know, basically world mandate as we kind of fall under the umbrella of world uh, agencies you know, dictates. So WH is going to like rubber stamp this thing and everybody's going to need to have a Zika vaccine, probably need one every three, four, two years, one year, whatever, forever. It's going to be given to kids and it's going to be an industry 
that we'll, we'll have no surcease because once it's there, then they'll start to announce, oh, you know what? We don't see any Zika microcephaly anymore. And they haven't seen any for the last eight years. So all of a sudden, again, prediction, you've heard it here. The prediction is they're going to have the vaccine. They're going to put it out. They're going to mandate it for everybody. And then they're going to announce it works because there's no Zika microcephaly happening. There hasn't been any anywhere. There wasn't any even that first year. And, and it's going to be a thing. I guarantee it. And my, my, the reason I'd like to, you know, that Mr. Kennedy to, to, to look at it is because this is something that needs to be headed off at the pass, as they say in the old Western uh, movie. Uh, do you think there's a possibility that they could, they could just do it internationally to start or, I mean, because a lot of this stuff now, the main push seems to be international with, with the bivalent. Yeah, and with absolutely. Absolutely. I think it's, I think it's going to be, world. We, we don't have that much tropics in the U S we just have Florida, bits of Texas, uh, Puerto Rico, uh, Guam, et cetera. But, you know, the, the world has a lot, you know, literally there are, I think, three and a half billion people living uh, in the tropics, uh, tropical, you know, India, um, right. Malaysia, Indonesia, you know, you all, you know, good swath of South America. So forth. There's, there's hundreds of millions of people and hundreds of millions of young women of, of childbearing age. And so, you know, the WHO is, is did a horrible thing during Zika. And there's a whole, again, we should maybe come back and talk about this separately. But they told women not to have any kids at all. Um, when I say they, these are WHO affiliated experts to PhDs. So they told women not to have any kids at all until the Zika vaccine came along. Now, people had, had listened. We we would have, you know, no kids that schools would have closed all throughout. Anyway, they didn't listen, fortunately, I'm, I'm sure. But there are literally hundreds of thousands of, of, of what I call ghost babies. Babies were not born because of this incredible fear. So these things come at a cost of human of, of love and devotion and, and family and so forth, you know, think people's lives get upended and nobody says, I'm sorry. You know, I go into a store, if I happen to break a vase or something like that, when I'm, you know, kind of, or my dog knocks something over, I, I say, I'm sorry, I pay for it. I try not to do it again. The, the, because Zika microcephaly was not reasonably adjudicated by anybody anywhere at the time, uh, they, they never had to say they're sorry. And that's a whole separate story uh, I, I can get to later separately with you. Uh, I had an article at JAMA, and they, in, in 2019, 2020, and they were willing to publish it. They said, oh, we, we think this is going to make the public health establishment look bad. We don't want to do it because coronavirus is coming around the corner. So I actually literally had that conversation with doctors Bauschner and Livingston, and they, they, they refused my article back then. But anyway, I'm, I'm done with my tirade, and I kind of want to you know, stay under the hour with you. So I'm going to give you the, the, the floor for uh, final words and where people can find you and so forth. Wow. So I'm really, I'm just fascinated. I hope we can have another conversation because yeah, I'd like that. I guess I, I'm aware that you have been, been, been feeling the edge of this for a while. Um, but it, you must've been a little bit frustrated in the beginning then, I guess, because um, you were awake relatively early. I would assume like in January or February, you already knew that something fishy was going on the uniformity of the messaging and the, the sort yeah. of well, I, I'm not. I'm not going to say I'm. I'm incredibly aware about all this, um, but I, you know, I, I try to keep my eyes and ears open. I think that any you know actual scientist has to do that. Otherwise, you are just an evangelist, which uh, you know yeah. I. I don't mind doing that to a certain extent, but I like to have my background first. Well, I would like to. I guess I would. Well, how I would close is to try and caution people to um, be sure that they understand that it is. Um, it is likely that the biopharmaceutical military industrial complex um, has grossly over-exaggerated a number of potential dangers that include 
bioterrorism, AI, um, genetics, uh, and, and AI in terms of genetics. Um, a, a great example that I have is an interview of Robert Malone, where he's talking about how when he was a, a grad student and a postdoc and working for all these big geneticists, um, he decided to work on retroviruses because he had become convinced that within 10 years, there would be a geneticist at every hospital curing childhood diseases with retroviral therapy. And these kinds of mythologies and misunderstandings about how our bodies interact, how our bodies communicate internally and externally, how our immune system works, have been perpetuated over a few decades and have resulted in you know, people in very high places with very much influence that don't understand that the immune system is deeper than an antibody response, that don't understand that um, vaccination can have side effects or that that immunization is not um, a perfected art. Yeah. yeah. And so these this this part of of our machine um, has a vested interest in us not understanding where the edge of their understanding is and instead wants us to believe that all these boogeymen are real. And so we better just let them handle it. And I'm I'm afraid that 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 they've gotten to our college kids. And so right now, maybe one of our last hopes is either the lawyers to get the PREP Act struck by um, saying that it's unconstitutional because it violates our Seventh Amendment rights and our doctors waking up and realizing that you were supposed to be in charge of your patients and nobody should have been able to send a memo from Washington, D.C. that decided whether you were going to use antibiotics or whether you were going to use steroids and when. And those simple things, um, I think, are great places to start because doctors need, everybody needs to extract themselves from the cave. Nobody's going to, nobody's going to be able to just, you know, shine the light in your face and now you can't help but see it. Yeah. Uh, this is really something that um, over the course of three years, we've been fooled into believing they've been covering something up and that they've been fighting over whether it's a lab leak or a or a natural virus because they want you to believe that both mother nature and bad guys are a perpetual source of danger rather than they themselves. The pharmaceutical industry, the CEPI and, and then the WHO and a lot of these organizations which are not elected. Bill Gates has never even run for mayor. How is it possible that he's the largest contributor directly and indirectly to the WHO? I mean, it's extraordinary to me. Yeah. Well, that's it's kind of the side effect of having a few billion dollars. Um, Maybe. Know, keeps them off the street. So thank you so much. <laughs> uh, I'm in your debt. I'm just going to uh, leave us with, um, um, I guess, uh, here's, here's um, you have a, a site. This You're on Twitch TV as GigaOM Biological, and um, you are on Twitter as uh, your name, pretty much. Yep. Uh, so it has linked to your um uh, to your company, your venture. So I pe recommend people uh, uh, reach out and um, follow you and uh, we'll see where things go from here. And again, um, uh, I enjoy this. If you'd like more about this, uh, this is not your screen working. This is his. Um, so uh, you can uh, let, you know, please comment, please share widely. And uh, thank you so much. I'm going to call it a day with you. Uh, you can hang on. We'll chat for another second or so. Okay. And we'll say goodbye to everybody else. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Bye-bye.